1 Corinthians chapter 14, I'll start in verse 1, which says this. Pursue love, yet earnestly desire, desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues... What will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you... Unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of a language, I will be the one who speaks a barbarian. And the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, In the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Let's pray. Lord, we come to this passage of Scripture, which can be confusing, and I pray, Lord, that you would give clarity to our hearts and minds and that we would be able to understand your truth and communicate it to others in love for your glory, that we might treasure your word more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to this section, and um, we're calling this part two of tongues and prophecy. There seems to be some sort of a contrast here between the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy, as we have said in our study through 1 Corinthians, is the gift of being able to communicate the Word of God, to speak forth the very Word of God. It was an important gift. It was an apostolic gift, but it's also a gift that is present today because there are people who are speaking forth the Word of God. It's not a natural gift. It's not a gift that an unbeliever can attain. It's, it's only a, believer, a gift that a believer can have. It's gifted to him by God and or her by God. 
and uh, we are to teach others the Word of God, explaining the Word of God. The gift of tongues, last week we spent most of our time looking at really what was this gift, and we walked through the book of Acts, and and what we discovered is that um, the norm in the book of Acts was not that you had um, this gift of tongues being present when somebody came to faith in Christ. Uh, but there are four occasions in the book of Acts where the gift of tongues seems to have been present at the coming of the Holy Spirit. Also, the Holy Spirit filling or indwelling, and let's just review those. So to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be not drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so it's this idea of being controlled, doing what the Spirit of God would have you to do. Uh, being indwelled by the Holy Spirit is something that every believer has. Uh, you cannot be an unbeliever, and uh, you cannot be a believer and not have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. And we saw that from Romans chapter 8, verse 9. And then also we have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is when you are immersed into the body of Christ. And that also happens at the moment of regeneration. And 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is the verse we looked at for that. And so we have the, the filling, the indwelling, and the baptism. Uh, filling is something that Christians uh, are commanded to do because we don't always do what the Spirit of God would have us to do. But we are never commanded to be baptized or to be immersed into the body of Christ because those happen for believers at the moment of regeneration. However, in the early church, during that time uh, where it was transitional from really an Old Testament believers to New Testament believers, while the church was being established, while the foundation was being laid, there were four occasions in the book of Acts where the gift of tongues was present as a visible and audible manifestation uh, where people um, who believed were later than filled with the Spirit. Why was this? Well, the first one was because it was the apostles. On the, the Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, there were about 120 believers gathered together in the upper room with the apostles, and they had been told by Christ to wait for the Holy Spirit. They believed Christ. They were the only believers. The church was very small. The church had not really formally been established yet. They were waiting for the Holy Spirit, and he came in Acts chapter 2, and we read that. Um, remember, there were people from 15 different nations who were there to celebrate uh, Pentecost, that national feast day where hundreds of thousands of foreigners would have come to Jerusalem to celebrate that. And many of them said in Acts 2.8, how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? So there was the supernatural gift. It had visible manifestations. It talks about tongues of fire coming down and setting on their heads. So it, it had some sort of visible presence of the Spirit as well as the supernatural, miraculous ability to speak a foreign language that you had never studied before. And that's what was taking place. And they were hearing them proclaim the wonders of God in their own tongue, in their mother tongue, in their own language. And we saw that in Acts 2, verses 1 through 11. And then we see it again in Acts 8, verses 4 through 25. Remember, Philip went up to Samaria. He was preaching Christ. Many came to faith, but they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And we know that both Peter and John went and prayed for them. And when Peter and John, after they had prayed for them, then they received the Holy Spirit. 
And though it doesn't say in Acts chapter 8 that they actually spoke in tongues, it seems from the passage, from the context, that there was either some sort of visible manifestation of the Spirit coming upon them, or that there would be some audible uh, yeah, the speaking of tongues, even though those words are not used. And the reason is because Simon the sorcerer, who was there, uh, who was kind of a magician before he professed faith in Christ, later saw when the Holy Spirit came on those Samaritans who believed, he offered Peter and John money uh, so that he could bestow the Spirit on people. So there was something about it that he was like, wow, this is, this is amazing. And um, so... Uh, uh, and, and, and what we noted last time is that the reason why, one of the reasons why the Spirit came upon the church in Samaria at a later stage is that they were so foreign and really despised by Jews that it was a confirmation to all of the apostles and all early church members who were Jews that God was sending His same Spirit to the Samaritans. And so that was, would have been a stretch for many of them, but uh, Christianity... The church now was not only for Jews, but for Samaritans. And um, if you think of Acts 1.8, which outlines the book of Acts, uh, but you shall receive power and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You shall be my witnesses unto Jerusalem and Judea and to the uttermost part, and Samaria, and that's how it went, and then the uttermost parts of the earth, the Gentiles. And they're the next ones who we see a visible manifestation of the the word of, uh, of, the, of the Spirit coming upon them, Acts chapter 10, verses 22 through 48. We read all these passages last time. It was at the household of Cornelius, and Peter was called by Cornelius. The Holy Spirit instructed uh, Peter to go up there and instructed Cornelius to send people to go fetch him. And then uh, while Peter was preaching, the Gentiles believed and received the Spirit, and they spoke in foreign tongues, and they were baptized with water, Acts eight forty seven. So... Um, 1047, Acts 1047. And then in Acts, so we have Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, and then Acts chapter 19. We have some Old Testament saints. They were disciples of John the Baptist who had believed in John's message of repentance and that the Messiah was coming, yet they were unaware really of the Holy Spirit and, um, and, and of some key details about the gospel. And so in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, we have them coming to faith in Christ, receiving the Holy Spirit, and then water baptizing happened at the same event. So Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19, we have Jewish believers and the coming of the Holy Spirit. We have Samaritan, the first Jewish believers. We have the first Samaritan believers, and then a separate coming of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 10, the first Gentile believers, a separate coming of the Holy Spirit. And then Acts 19, the first Old Testament saints who... Uh, had believed, but not really, you know, uh, have been a part. We see another visible man- manifestation. So we know that this this gift was present in the early church, and we know that it was a sign for unbelievers uh, and a sign for believers that the unbelievers were to be a part of the church. But we don't. There are thousands of people who come to faith in Christ in the Book of Acts, and we don't read anything about this. And as we read throughout the scriptures, the gift of tongues is in very limited places, and we just don't see it very often, especially as the letter written, it's not present, almost as though this gift died out even before the canon was closed. But we come to our passage now in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 19, and 
we're looking at two key principles about spiritual gifts that really should motivate us to desire the right gifts. And the first one we saw last week, and that is a desire for spiritual gifts can be good. Paul is putting together in verse 1 of chapter 14, all of chapter 12 and all of chapter 13. Chapter 13 is about love. Chapter 12 was about unity, even though you have different gifts. And he says, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. And so we talked about this last time, and some people asked me questions, so I think I need to review it just quickly, because I, I talked about the second person plural pronouns and the second person plural verbs in this passage, you, you all, and some people said, hey, I followed the whole message until you started talking about second person plural verbs, and then it sounded like you were speaking in tongues, and it was just foreign to me, and I just lost uh, everything, and so... I I just want to kind of review that because I think that's somewhat significant in this passage, and it's very clear in verse 1. But some people might say, desire spiritual gifts to everyone because he's just said in chapter 12 that not everyone should desire the same gift. So why is he saying we should all prophesy? That seems weird to me because he's just said, all do not prophesy, do they? End of chapter 12, right? And so... um, but there's, there's, there is something significant about the verbs that he chose to use and the number that he got, first person, second person, or third person. What I mean by that, if someone's telling a story and they're telling it about themselves, they normally tell it in the first person. Well, I did this. I went to the store and I saw this person and I bought this and I and me and my. And those are the, those are the words that we use, uh, the pronouns, I, me, my when I'm talking about myself, and we talk about that as the first person. There are some people who use those pronouns too much, and they just almost talk about themselves, and they're like, wow, that person speaks in the first person a lot. Um, And then when a narrator tells a story, you're reading a book or telling a story about something that that happened to other people, typically speaks in the third person. Uh, He was doing that. She said to her friend, and they believed this. And so it's he, she, and they, and it's it's written from the third person. I don't know if you've ever met anybody who speaks in the third person too much. Uh, When I was 18, I lived with a family for a a period of months, and then I had to move out because, uh, well, I didn't have to move out, but they were sweet. But if they hear this recording, I don't want them to say, but they... um, they spoke in the third person to their kid, and it was it was hard as a kid person without kids. But they were like, like, how is boy doing good? Oh, boy thirsty. Boy, some water from. I was in the kitchen. We'll go see them. I'm like, this is the third person all the time. This kid's gonna grow up and not know grammar. This is hard. So, um, so, so you you know what the third person? The third person is the narrator telling the story about. But second person is when the narrator speaks directly to people. You. And you do this, and you, and, and so when you are the speaker, and the, or the, the, you're trying to differentiate here or, or speak, about people, speak to people directly, then you're speaking in the second person. And most languages, not English, but most languages differentiate between first, sorry, <laughs> between second person singular and second person plural, between you singular and you all. And we don't do that in English, and our English Bibles don't do that. And so we say, hey, you. Well, I don't know if you meant, like, everybody or you singular. Or, hey, you really need to get your homework done, and, and I could be speaking to the whole class or an individual. But uh, in, in Spanish, we have you singular, which is usted, right? You uh, no recuerdo. And then you have uh, ustedes, which is you plural, 
right? And then uh, if you have, uh, in, in Greek, it's the same thing. Every time, not only every time with pronouns, but every time you see a verb, it's written in the person and singular and plural. So the ending tells you, and you can see it clearly. And all that is to say that when we see this verse in verse 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, it's, it's not just pursue love, but it's literally you all pursue love as a church, the whole church. Yet you all desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you all may prophesy. And the whole implication there is that the whole church should desire that prophecy should be a gift among them all. Not that every one of them would have that same gift. That would go against what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 12. And this leads us to a second principle that we have. The first one is that a desire for gifts. The second principle is that prophecy is a much better gift than the gift of tongues. Prophecy should be desired more greatly than tongues. Prophecy should be, is, is better. And that's really what he's saying in, in verses, chapters one, uh, verses 1 through 19 of chapter 14. Prophecy is, if you're going to look at gifts, it's better. And actually, at the end of chapter 12, he lists them in order of his... Uh, if you just look back at 1 Corinthians 12, he says, towards the end, he says... Um, uh, there are various... Ki- okay, so... Okay, verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles. He's putting them in a priority list here. First apostles. Hey, if you're a church, that was an option for Corinth because, the, because none of them could have the gift of apostleship because an apostle had to have certain requirements, be appointed by Christ himself, like Paul was, have been a part of Christ's earthly ministry, like when they were choosing the new apostle after Judas was gone in the early chapters of Acts there. And so God has appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophecy, third miracles, then gifts of peace. He goes through this list, and at the very bottom, notice, is tongues, okay, Um, into verse 28. So he has this idea that there were certain gifts that would be more beneficial for the church. And the one that was available to the church in Corinth that they should have desired the most was prophecy. That is, speaking forth the word of God. All right? Those who were gifted to speak forth the word of God. And at times, like before the canon of Scripture was closed, those who had a prophetic gift often received revelation as well. But since the canon has been closed, since the book of Revelation was finished, those who have this gift simply expound, explain, teach, understand, and communicate the word of God. All right, so we're going to look at the second principle that prophecy is better. Prophecy is, prophecy is more beneficial than tongues. That's what he's saying in these 19 verses, and he gives three reasons. And the reason why I chose all, th- all 19 verses is because he, re- he kind of repeats himself and jumps around a bit. But the three reasons I'll give them to you now, and that is tongues were limited in their clarity. Tongues were limited in and tongues were limited their ability to build us, and that's what we're going to look at as we look at this. But before we do, any questions? Because I've just thrown a bunch at you. Yes, Joe. Was there any weird thing in the prophecy? So I think that all, all of those... So sometimes uh, we say... Okay, when we talk about prophecy, we're really talking about preaching now, speaking for God. And sometimes... 
we say, um, oh, he's a really good preacher, but he's not much of a teacher, right? Which is, that's impossible, right? Because all preachers must teach the word of God. What they're trying to say is he's really boring, but he really is a friendly guy. And, and uh, it, that's what they're saying when they say that. It's ridiculous because what that means is you should fire him. Because if you had a shepherd looking after your little baby sheep and he really loved on them and cuddled with them and combed their hair, but he never took them to a, a, a pasture where there was good food and good water and they're emaciated, you'd get rid of that, that shepherd. He'd be a bad shepherd. But somehow when we think that somebody is a pastor and yet they're not a good teacher, nobody learns anything from him, that we should still keep him because he's a super nice guy. So all preachers must be teachers, but not all teachers are preachers. And so if there is a distinction, I think the gift of teaching is, 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 is there and would have some sort of difference. And remember, when we talk about these spiritual gifts, which we went through in detail in chapter 12, it's not as though every person just had And it's not as though uh, it, it, there are various gifts, but the way that we read about gifts in, this, in the few passages we have in Scripture that talk about them, it's almost as though everyone has their own mixture of spiritual giftings. And so, um, yeah, I do think that there would be a distinction between preaching and, and uh, teaching or, or prophecy, speaking forth and, and teaching. Yes? Uh, so in verse 1, you said you all pursue love and grow in Christ with the gift. Yep. And you said you all uh, um, prophesy and you said it's a general, right? Yes. So does that mean that generally people just love and generally people just bless with the gifts but not teach with the gifts at the same time? So the whole church, I think, I think what's, what, the, a good way to think about verse 1 is you as a church, as a whole, should pursue love. That's what I've been saying in chapter 13 is what he's saying. And then he says, yet at the same time, that's an adversative there, it's a contrast and conjunction, but at the same time, I'm not saying that you should just neglect spiritual gifts. You all, as a church, should desire spiritual gifts earnestly. They're, they're good for you, okay? And then he says, especially... Prophecy. You all should value the speaking forth of the word of God. All right? Okay, let's, let's, yes, yes. So, yeah, Im- clarity, impact, and ability. So, so, so let's, let's take a look, first of all, at clarity. At clarity, tongues were limited in their clarity. These, we were saying that prophecies, uh, that prophecies matter than tongues. Is that because tongues are limited, and they're limited in their clarity, first of all. Take a look at verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. So there is something going on here, and it's difficult. And, and this, this passage is not an easy passage. I've tried to break it into these three categories of explaining the overall general idea that, that prophecy is better than tongues. But the reason this passage is difficult is because it's unclear at times whether Paul is talking about the gift of tongues as it was practiced in Acts or the abuse of the gift of tongues. And that should be clear from the book of Corinthians. They used everything, right? They prized that they're by certain people, and they prized and they prized um, uh, they, they prized uh, immorality, and they 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 were a, they were a church that was affected by the culture, 
and a lot of pagan practices, meat, eating, sacrifice, eating meat sacrificed to idols and idol worship and all that was integrated with their worship. And so there was in the first century, even two or three, four centuries before that, there, there, were, there was ecstatic speech, which was where you, you know, the cults, the, 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 the pagan cults sometimes would, would whip themselves into a frenzy and speak gibberish and roll around on the ground and cut themselves and all kinds of stuff that we have historical records of this pagans. And it seems like some of that had worked its way into the church in Corinth. So there was, there was some abuse of the, the gift of tongues. So that's something to keep in mind as you read through this and saying, is he talking about the true gift or the abuse of, of the gift? And it seems to be like he talks about both, but uh, there are some who look at actually whenever he... Because sometimes he uses the word tongue singular and the tongue plural. And some commentators believe that when he says tongues plural, he's speaking more of the true tongues, the true gift of tongues and tongue singular, um, the, the, the counterfeit gift. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that we can do that with the singular and the plural. I, I, I don't, I'm not sure I see that. But I do see that there was abuse, and we see that throughout chapter 14 because he corrects a lot of the abuses later on in the, in the second half of the chapter. But he says, For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. Again, we have a difficult uh, passage here because... Uh, um, all right, I'm just going to say it. This could be translated or a God, okay? There is no definite article. Uh, this gets into a difficult thing with grammar, and, and, and you can read all kinds of commentaries. They go into this deeply here, and I think it's helpful. But um, uh, in Greek, we have a definite article, the, the God. It usually is there when we're speaking about Yahweh, but not always. Um, and... There is no indefinite article. We don't have in Greek a, uh, a time where there is an indefinite article where, where we say a or an. It's just implied if the definite article is not there. The tricky thing is that sometimes when the definite article is not there, it can be definite. And let me give you an example. I know, I know it's crazy, isn't it? But let me give you an example. If you just grew up speaking ancient Greek, which nobody speaks today, you would know this, but uh, since none of us did that. But let me give you just one example of a place, John chapter 1, verse 1, which actually for too many reasons, it could distract us the whole time. But um, the first words of John chapter 1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. Now, there is no article with beginning. Literally, it's in beginning was the word, definite article with the word, okay? And you're saying, well, why do they have the beginning there? Because the context makes it clear that he's talking about, he's making a reference to Genesis 1, and he's, he's talking about the beginning, since creation. And so translators add the word the, and in Greek, it would, could have been understood that this is a definite beginning he's talking about. He's not just talking about in some beginning out there, Right? It just doesn't make sense. And so there, there's an example of where we don't have okay, a, a, an article, but, we, but it's implied from the context. Um, when we look at our passage, the question comes, question comes, well, is it speaking about God or a God? And some of your versions, New American Standard capitalizes it. The translators think, oh, we think this is talking about Yahweh, God, so capital G. 
Either way, it doesn't take away from the meaning of the text. What, the reason why some people say that it has to be a God here, probably, is because if he's talking about the abuse of it, and so you say here, does not speak to men, but to a God. This could be a reference to pagan practices where you're doing some sort of ecstatic speech that is just gibberish, and you're speaking to some cultish God. It could be that he's saying that. If you're practicing the true gift and there's no interpretation, then you're not speaking to men either because nobody understands you. The only one who understands you is God, and for some reason, you don't even understand what you're saying. Those are your two options, okay? Um, But he goes on and he says, for no one understands, literally no one hears you. No one really understands you, but in his spirit, he speaks mysteries. That is, you're speaking it in your, not the Holy Spirit, but in your human spirit, you're speaking something that is a mystery to everybody because nobody knows what you're saying. So when we come to verse two, we see there's no clarity. That's all I'm trying to point out is that tongues oftentimes didn't have clarity. If they were, if they, if you were practicing them and somehow they're practicing them incorrectly here, either they're practicing them in Corinth, which they all spoke Greek. And so Everybody speaks the same language, and now somebody speaks, and nobody understands them because nobody understands either the language that they're speaking of is a true one, or what's probably more likely is that since they all desired it, they're all trying to do it. And maybe some, one person is actually trying to do it, but now everybody's chiming in, and we have this thing where it's hum a you know. Uh, I mean, you read these books on how, you know, it, it, it's scary, like, like how it's, you know, I tie my bow tie, you tie my bow tie, I tie my bow tie, you tie my bow tie, and you just say it faster, and all of a sudden you're speaking in tongues, right? I mean, whatever, what, what, like, like it can be manufactured, but, but that's kind of the thing. People, you know, um, uh, just practicing and throwing it in there, I tie my bow tie, you have coriander, and you're just throwing some spices or whatever. I don't know, it, but it, it's just a... Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, okay, I'm being a little funny, but, but, but the reality is there are people who teach other people how to do this by just telling them, just say what I say, just do what I do. And as though it can all be done, and somehow this is worship to God. And his point is, that's not clear to anyone. Again, we see clarity in verse 6, verses 6 through 9. Let me look at that. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what would I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge, or of prophecy, or of teaching, yet even lifeless things. Um, In verses 6 through 9, he gives four illustrations of how clarity is important. The first one is an illustration of, even if I had a personal visit, even if I, Paul, came to you, see what he says? If I come to you speaking in tongues, unless I speak to you, uh, by way of revelation, because you're not going to understand what I'm saying when I'm speaking in tongues, because you don't speak in the tongues that I would be speaking, because I know Greek, and you know Greek, and that's what I would be teaching in if I were prophesying, or giving revelation, or explaining how to use that revelation through knowledge, or teaching. So if I'm doing one of those things, then, then uh, obviously, uh, that's no to you if I spoke in tongues. Prophecy is better because tongues is not clear to you unless you have proper interpretation. Same, he gives another illustration in, verses, in verse 7, and that is of instruments that don't really have an, a tune. Like when somebody says, hey, I can, 
I have the supernatural gift. I'm evident that they don't because they're three years old and they're just bound, you know, pounding on it or whatever. He says, yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? So if, how do you know what tune they're playing if they don't make any tune, if they just have the same sound? You ever play the um, name that tune game in a car and somebody has no ability to change the pitch of their voice? It's hard. It's hard to see what tune they're saying if they have the same tone. No elbows here uh, today. But uh, it's hard. Uh, and they gives another example, and that is... Uh, Uh, going to war and the bugle. He says in verse 8, for if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? In other words, the bugle had a certain charge. It wasn't like da-da-da-da-da, but it was something, whatever their their bugle or their horn had a call, a certain call, but it was different from the one that's saying go to bed or get up. And if, if they all sounded the same, how would you even, how would it benefit you? How would it be productive? And he gives a fourth example, and that is tongues with no interpretation. Verse 9, so also, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, there we have that clarity, how will it be known what is spoken, for you will be speaking into the air. And so there needs to be clarity, and we just don't have that with tongues like you do with mouth. That's what he's saying. Let's move to a second, a second reason why Prophecy is better than tongues, and that is because tongues were limited in their impact. Uh, Take a look here um, at verse 10, verses 10 and 11. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind without meaning. Here he's talking about legitimate languages, and every legitimate language has meaning to it. He says, verse 11, If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. The word meaning there in verse 11, take a look at that. If then I do not know the meaning, this is what it's from. Okay, we get the word dynamite from it, but dynamite wasn't invented until the 1800s, so they weren't thinking about dynamite. But the word is often translated as power, effectiveness, uh, it's translated as ability or impact. He's saying, hey, what does it matter? You know, if I, if I am speaking to you and you don't, you know, if, if I don't have, you don't have the meaning of the language, the impact of the language, it means nothing to you, right? Just like you're, if you were sitting uh, in, in a church in, in Russia and you sat through the whole service and you heard it in Russian, it really wouldn't mean anything to you. I mean, this is why we needed the Reformation, because somehow the church had got to a point where, the, where they thought Latin was the best language to communicate God, and that nobody should have it translated in their own work, in their own word, and the priests were the only ones who knew Latin. And so as they're reading Latin to the people, uh, it was as though somehow speaking forth the word mystically helped them, even though they didn't understand it. Or as what happened often was that the priests would then try to explain it in their own language, but because his understanding was wrong, they were all being taught wrong things. And so having the word of God in your own language, having, knowing the meaning, it, here it is. It's, it's beneficial. So we've seen that tongues was limited in clarity and in impact. And thirdly, 
in the ability to build up others. Before I get to that, any questions? Yes. Right. Yeah. So there's a, there's a certain person that comes and visits a church, perhaps, um, and and he he leads to this. And later on, if you take a look, um, uh, in verse twenty seven. Um, well, let me see here. Um, oh, here we go. Um, Verse 22, so then tongues are for a sign to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. There, there is a word in our passage that's found later on in this text, and that is somebody who comes in and hears it but doesn't understand. And the, the word that's used here is uh, found in... Um, the ungifted, verse 16. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted, that word translated unskilled, ignorant, unlearned, the word actually is idiotu. We get a word in English from it, but it's not an edifying word, idiot. But it's, it's the, the uneducated, the, un, the un, un, unskilled person. So somebody comes in, they know nothing about the gospel, and he's saying, uh, if they hear you speaking in tongues, they're going to think you're crazy. Um, but if they're from another country and they heard it and they hear them speaking the, the wonders of God in their own language, it would help them say, hey, there's something here that's un, un, I've never heard you know, somebody from Galilee speaking like this. How does he know my home? You know, that sort of thing. So there were, that, that would have been the purpose. The other purpose, I suppose, could have been in that first transitional period to if the church was unwelcoming of another people group, but then all of a sudden there was a visible manifestation that confirmed to them, like like we saw was happening in that first century. So, uh, yes, question. Yeah, if it, if you're if you're speaking uh, and abusing this gift, it's of no benefit to anyone, and in fact, it causes harm rather than good. There's another section of our of our passage that talks about the impact. Actually, in verse 19, Paul says, "I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all." And he says, uh, however, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Instruction is one of the benefits of prophecy, of speaking forth the word of God. We learn what God would have to do, and tongues doesn't. Paul was an evangelist who traveled to many nations, and he had the gift of 
tongues, the ability to speak in foreign languages he had never studied. It would have come in very handy, and it's, I don't know if he used it all the time. We have very few records of him using it, but he says, I speak in, in more than you all. Sometimes people just take that one verse, and they say, you see, Paul says, I speak it, and it's, it's obviously that we're supposed to be doing this, but the context here is, hey, if I could speak five words that had an impact in your life because they instruct you, I'd rather do that than 10,000 words that have no impact in your life. Because the tongues were not better. All right? Um, We're going to get to the third next week. We're going to look at tongues were limited in their ability to build up others. And we're going to talk a lot about building up others. Um, One of the questions that comes out of here as you read books, it's pretty interesting, is actually verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. There are those who believe that tongues are for today and they are for the purpose of self-edification. And they use that verse positively. There's actually someone that has a picture of a superhero named Spirit Man who's there and he's, and, and, and he's going la out of a little thing. And then it says underneath you know, uh, you edify yourself. Um, and yeah, so self-edification is, is one, of the, one of the things. Kenneth Hagin uses this verse on the top 10 reasons to speak tongues. It brings you self-edification. Kenneth Hagin is a false teacher. So think about that. Why is self-edification bad? And because the, the, re- the rationale, and it's a, it's a fairly good argument, it's a fairly good question, and that is, and we'll begin this next week when we come together, but uh, the rationale is, well, if I can strengthen myself so that I can help others, why wouldn't that be bad? Why would that be a bad thing? Sounds like a good thing. We had a couple more questions, and we have about five more minutes. So, yes. Yeah, so the question is, if tongues were primarily for, for unbelievers, which is what he teaches later here in the, the, the chapter, um, it's because, verse 26 says, let all things be done for edification. Um, if anyone has a tongue, it should be by two or three at the most, th- uh, three, two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. The idea is that somebody maybe comes in and... Uh, in the church, and, and uh, as though this gift was used with unbelievers, maybe Paul had the ability to communicate to people who spoke different languages, and he was able to communicate to them in their own language. And but in the church where we're there worshiping, and you have a teacher, and somebody says, "Oh, I, I, I would like to exercise my gift, the gift of tongues," and they stand up and they say it, and maybe there's someone there from that country, and they're like, "Wow, uh, this is amazing," but for everybody else, it means nothing. And so to have somebody stand up and say, okay, now I'm going to give the interpretation, and he interprets it. Now everybody hears this word from the Lord. Uh, and they, remember, this is at a time where some of, some of this revelation was given was something they didn't have access to other than going to church and hearing it given by those who'd been given the gift. So uh, it, it could be done with interpretation. And there is a sense, and I would say this, that tongues with interpretation is equal to 
prophecy. Because tongues was just speaking forth the very words of God or the wonders of God in a different language. And if you had the interpretation, it just took more steps. It's kind of like new matter. Uh, I don't know. Um, All right, got time for one more question. All right, I think we did cover a lot. I, I, I'm looking forward to get, getting through and talking about edification. That's what we're going to focus on completely next time, which is verses 3 through 5 and 12 through 17. Let's pray. Thank you for the opportunity we've had to look to your word, and we're thankful, Father, that we can look and understand what the early church went through and that we can be encouraged um, that the benefit of hearing your word, your word is amazing. Lord, we know that your word is written for our instruction. We know that your word is powerful, that It says that the gospel is the very power of God unto salvation, but it not only saves us, but it also sanctifies us, as Acts 20, 32 teaches us, that it's able to build us up. And Father, we desire to be built up, not for our own edification, but so that uh, your name may be exalted, and we, we desire that we could build others up through the proclamation of your word. And we know that in the early church, they abused spiritual gifts, and we know that today there are those who are abusing spiritual gifts. May, not, may that not be a source of pride for us or arrogance or in, being inconsiderate, but as we have opportunity to share with others your truth, may we do so in love to, for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.